0: Uh, Before I get into the message, I do just ask for a little bit of grace. Uh, Just as the service was beginning, I got a phone call that uh, the individual I was visiting last night, tested positive this morning for COVID. So what that means is that at the end of the service, I will not be out there shaking hands and hugging on everybody. I am far enough away from you where it shouldn't be a problem now, but afterwards, just understand that there is a reason I'm not being sociable this morning. I'm just trying to protect everybody, so I appreciate each of you and your grace. It is a blessing to be able to be with you this morning, to be in the house of the Lord. The Wesleyan Church, every so many years, offers a conference for pastors in Orlando, Florida. And this past week was that conference. Uh, Thank you for sending myself and many of the staff to be a part of that event this week. I believe I can speak for each of them when I say that uh, it was definitely an, an encouragement, and it was a refreshing time as we heard biblical messages of hope and restoration, and as we connected with other pastors who were involved in ministry, some of whom we haven't seen in many years, and as we simply took a breath from all that goes on with ministry. So thank you as a church for sending us to be a part of that event. Although we are certainly grateful for the opportunity to go, it is always a blessing also just to return home and to sleep in our own beds as well. Uh, I also want to say thank you for holding things together while I was gone. Uh, there was a period where every time the pastor went out of town, somebody died. And that is not an exaggeration. It honestly felt like every single time nobody died. Thank you so much for keeping things together this time. Last week, I started a series entitled The Year of Jubilee. It's based out of Leviticus chapter 25. We're going to be there all throughout the month of January. First, if you missed last week's Sermon. I want to encourage you to go back, and I don't normally point people to previous sermons, but I do encourage you to go back and listen to it again. It's on YouTube or Facebook, doesn't matter. It is foundational stuff, and as we look at the year ahead and all that God has planned for us, it is beneficial for us to recognize that there is a biblical foundation to all of this. We look with anticipation at what the Lord is going to do in and through his church, and there should be a sense of excitement, so I encourage you to go back and look at that. But before I get into today's message, I also want to point out that this week's sermon is slightly out of order in relation to the passage, but that is on purpose. Last week I shared from Leviticus chapter 25, verse 8 through 12, and this week we're going to jump to verse 18. Next week we'll be back at verse 13. The reason we're doing this out of order is that I need your help for next week's sermon. I mentioned last Sunday that the year of Jubilee brought with it incredible blessing. We refer to it as the year of the Lord's favor, and that includes many things. But one of the things that this brought was freedom for the captives. Next week, we're going to look at this element, believing that God still desires to bring freedom to the captives. I'm not talking about those who are physically a slave to another person. I'm talking about those who are slaves to various forms of hurts, habits, and hang-ups, Addiction and belief that is unhealthy about themselves. Do you still believe that God can set people free from addiction? Do you still believe that God can deliver those who are oppressed by the lies of Satan? Do you still believe that God can move people from despair into hope? I absolutely believe that today. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that means that Jesus is just as powerful to deliver today as he was 2,000 years ago. So this is... Where I need your help for next Sunday. Perhaps you have a friend or a loved one, a family member who is currently in bondage to some form of addiction. Perhaps you have a family member who is a slave to fear or maybe even to bitterness because of things that have been done to them in the past. Invite them to join you for church this coming Sunday. And then I ask that you would pray continually over the next few days that God would use their presence in next Sunday's service to change their world completely. Pray that God would miraculously show up and that he would set them free. I do caution you briefly with this. As you pray that God would show up and that he would set them free from whatever it is that binds them, There is the possibility that God might show up and show you that he needs to set you free from something as well. We're so good at looking at other people's sin and their struggles and identifying the needs that they have. Those kind of people need Jesus. I got to tell you, these kind of people need Jesus too. If you remember last week, I shared a passage with you, where Jesus had talked about freedom, promising you that if the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. And the people responded by saying that they'd never been slaves to anyone, so how could they be set free? Well, I wonder if many of the people who sit in these pews every single Sunday are in need of some type of freedom, and we just don't realize it. We think we're good because we're better than those around us, or we think we're pretty good because we've come so far already, but perhaps God still longs to set us free. So invite someone else to come next Sunday, and then begin to pray that he would show up and set people free. Well, this morning's text is about the promise that the Lord will provide. We've sung about it already. God has called many things throughout the scriptures. And those names often carry a specific meaning, especially in the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament as well. For example, in the Christmas season, Jesus is often referred to as Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. It's very accurate because Jesus is God and he came and dwelt with mankind. Do you remember when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush? Moses was being sent to go and deliver the people of Israel from bondage in Egypt. And he says to the Lord, whom shall I say has sent me? And what he's actually saying is, what's your name? Who are you? Because I'm gonna talk to these people. I'm gonna tell them that I've been sent to set them free. Who will I say has sent me? God responds with a very simple answer, but so vague. He simply says, I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. God is the great I am. This is about the eternal nature of God. I am, that statement is in the perfect tense. It is a continual statement. It does not need a beginning, and it gives no indication of an ending. And That is who God is. But God has other names, that are given. In the Hebrew language, God is referred to as El Shaddai, which means the Lord God Almighty. Or Elyon, the Most High God. Adonai, which means Master. Yahweh, means the Lord, Jehovah. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. Jehovah Shema, means the Lord is there. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. And the last one I'll cover, and this one we're going to focus on today. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Did you know that God has always been providing for his people? Do you remember the the story of the Israelites as they were delivered from bondage, and they left following Moses out on this 40-year journey out of Egypt to the promised land. 40 years is a long time to journey, not really seeing the finish line all that often. Well, during that time, they would need to eat. Well, God was very much aware of this need to eat, so he would provide for them every single day. In fact. Six days per week, God would, God's people would wake up to find something very simple laying on the ground. It was almost like dew, but it was called manna. It would appear in the morning and the people would gather it up and they would prepare it as a meal. And somehow this manna would meet their dietary needs. I want you to know they were probably grateful for the manna, but it's not the manna that provided for their needs it was the God who sent the manna. It came from him. The only day that they were not to gather the manna was on the Sabbath, but the Lord always provided enough on the sixth day so that their needs would be met on the seventh day as well. The Lord provides. He doesn't give more than what's needed, but he always provides. Well, As we continue in Leviticus 25, we see much the same. Listen to it beginning in verse 18. Follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws and you will live safely in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and live there in safety. You may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. Now, in case you didn't catch that, this is the same principle that was on display in the provision of manna. Don't worry about the seventh day because God will provide enough in the sixth day. Don't worry about the seventh year because God will provide enough in the sixth year. God will provide. And when it comes to the year of Jubilee, God will provide for yet another year. Remember that we talked about this last week. This year of Jubilee comes in the 50th year following the 49th year. That's the way math works, 49 and then 50. The people were to work the fields for six years and then give the fields a Sabbath rest. Don't harvest, don't plow, don't do any of it. Give it a rest. But in that sixth year, God will provide enough for your family to last for two years, typically. For those of you who aren't good at math, what that means is the seventh year, 14th, 21st, 28th, 35th, 42nd, and 49th year, there is a time of rest. But this creates a problem. Remember that the year of Jubilee comes in the 50th year. If you took the 49th year as a Sabbath, What are you going to eat in the 50th year? Actually, the Lord tells the people not to worry about it. He says, I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year, talking about the 48th year, that the land will yield enough for three years. That covers both the 49th and 50th year. The point of this is that I want you to see that the Lord always provides for his people. God is more than enough for whatever needs may be present in our lives. But I wonder sometimes if the church and many of us in this room has actually forgotten that. I wonder if somewhere along the way we got things a little confused, thinking that we could provide for ourselves. I want to be clear that this passage does indicate some responsibility that does fall on God's people. It begins with a call to God's people that we should follow, according to the passage, follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws. We're talking about God himself here. Follow God's decrees and be careful to obey God's laws. And then it talks about the blessings that will come upon God's people. So let's begin here with this call to godliness. First, you should note that this is not the only time that God's people are called to live godly lives. And in response, God's blessing is promised. You've heard me read from Joshua chapter 1 on many occasions. Obey the law of God, and then you will be prosperous. Then you'll be successful. That seems pretty simple to understand. Similarly, we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 32, that we should walk in obedience to all that the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. What about in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 3, where it says, Observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? We're hearing the same thing over and over again. And even in the New Testament, we see this same principle in play as Jesus says that we should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these other things will be added unto you. There is a clear expectation that we will seek the Lord and walk in obedience to him, then followed by the blessing of God. So obedience and godliness matter. I want to make sure you heard that, so I'm going to repeat that multiple times. Obedience and godliness matters. It is foolishness to say that you live for God and yet you remain in the same sin that has plagued you for years already. Obedience and godliness matters. I'm afraid many in the church have forgotten that. My guess is that all of you expected me to tell you that obedience and godliness matters this morning. Now I want to stretch you for just a moment with what I'm about to share. If all that you have is solely dependent upon your own goodness, your obedience you are going to be very disappointed. If it's all about what you can do on your own, then you don't need God and you don't need the church either. I think many of us have misunderstood this passage, suggesting that if I will just be good, then that will be enough. If I'm a nice person, if I do good things, then blessings will just magically happen to me. But the land doesn't just magically produce fruit without God making it happen. Listen to me, the Pharisees did this all the time in Jesus' day. They taught people to live good lives, to live up to a standard that they deemed as right. And most of the time, they even used scripture as the tool to determine what that standard should be. They weren't just making it all up. They were simply choosing to focus on the ones that they liked the most. Somewhere along the way, their story became all about goodness, them doing what was right, and it was no longer about them experiencing God. That's partially why when Jesus appeared on the scene, So many of the Pharisees fought to stop him. That's why Jesus seems to respond to almost everyone with a sense of love and compassion, gentleness. Yet he confrontationally calls the Pharisees whitewashed cups, clean on the outside but filthy on the inside. Doesn't sound too gentle, does it? Sure, they may have appeared good on the outside, but they were missing the God element on the inside. Their goodness was not enough. And unfortunately, I would add that this is a struggle even for the church today. I've already told you that obedience and godliness matters, but just being good isn't the end all. Just being politically conservative, just attending church regularly, just giving financially, just calling yourself a Christian doesn't make you right with God. What we actually need is a right relationship with him. I heard a speaker share this week that there is something that is tragically missing within the body of Christ today. And I believe that he was correct in what he said. He was talking about the issue of God's people being set apart and different he was talking about the purity that ought to exist among Christians, yet the reality is that Christian purity is barely discernible compared to people outside of Christ. What do I mean by that? The speaker shared that he had gone to his accountant to take care of his taxes. The accountant noted that this pastor had included his speaking fees for various engagements and special events that he'd been a part of. The pastor confirmed that he had done that, that he included those numbers, and then he asked the question, am I not supposed to include those numbers? The accountant responded, I do the taxes for almost every other pastor in this community, and you are the only one who includes that information. He said, yes, you're supposed to, but most do not. The reality is this speaker was the the point that this speaker was making was that even among pastors we cut corners on integrity and doing what's right and my guess is it's not just the pastors the sad reality is that very few within the body of Christ are actually living as if they are set apart i'm not just talking about this local church i'm talking about the church as a whole but j- just stop for a second let's not just talk about them So often it's a struggle even within this church. Among those in the body of Christ, there are still many who are cheating on their taxes. There are many who are bearing false witness, and that comes in many different forms. There are many who are committing sexual immorality, again, coming in many different forms. There are many who are gossiping and complaining, things that we are told not to do. There are many who live no more like Christ than those who are outside of the church. I can't help but wonder why that is. Let me suggest that it's not because we haven't told people that they should and shouldn't do certain things. We've actually been pretty good at telling people not to sin. In fact, for the vast majority of the watching world, they know Christians primarily by what we stand against perhaps even more than knowing us by who we stand for. Now, I do recognize there are some preachers who have allowed the pendulum to swing so far in the other direction that they no longer preach against sin, certainly not the ones that might offend their congregation. But I don't believe that that is the problem here. Perhaps for some people, it's because we no longer expect accountability for our sins. I mean that from both sides of this. We no longer expect God to punish people for the sins that they participate in. We're so dependent upon God's grace that we figure it's okay if we continue in our sin. But the apostle Paul asked the question, shall I continue in sin so that grace might abound even more? He then answered, absolutely not, no way. But many no longer expect God to judge those who sin. Or perhaps they think that such judgment is so far off in the distance that it's almost irrelevant to today's actions. There will come a day that we will all stand before God and we will be held accountable. But we look at it, that's so far away, it doesn't really apply to us today. The other side of this is that we no longer tie our obedience to God to the blessings which flow from God. That certainly fits with today's passage. But today's passage suggests that we ought to live in obedience to him and then we can know that he will provide for all our needs. So the logic doesn't work there either. <laughs> I have another suggestion as to why so many of us, am not talking about the brokenness and the immorality of those outside the body of Christ. I'm talking about those of us within the church. I have another suggestion as to why many of us are not walking in obedience, not living a life that reflects the Lord's presence in us. I wonder if it's not maybe because so many of us are too focused in simply doing good, And I do think that that's a reality for many in the church. We are so focused on doing good instead of getting to know the one who is good. Here's a great way to illustrate this. Y'all know I have three kids. They're amazing. Michael's the only one in this service this morning, so he's my favorite. (laughs) At least at this moment, because he's the one who's here. Linda has pulled out baby pictures of my kids, and she has compared them to her baby pictures, and the truth is that my kids sure looked more like my wife than they did me as babies. But a funny thing has happened as they have grown up. It seems that every time I turn around, they look more and more like their daddy. And I love it. (laughs) So much so that I could never actually deny whether they're my children, even if I wanted to. That's the way that it's supposed to be for those who call themselves Christians. Every day, they ought to look a little more like their heavenly father. I'm not just talking about in their physical attributes, although we are talking about that part too. I'm talking about in their behaviors and the way they talk, the attitudes that they display, the decisions that are being made. They ought to look more and more like their heavenly father. Not that long ago, I was riding down the road with Michael in the vehicle, and we were going to school, and the car in front of me was not driving the way I thought they should. But before I could say anything, I hear Michael say, oh, come on, lady. (laughs) I immediately looked over, and I realized that he was simply repeating what he had seen and heard in me before. (laughs) See, the thing is, he's having personal interactions with me, and what happens is we begin to think and do the same things. It's like when Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then the healing of a man who had been lame. The issue was not that they had healed the man, but rather they did so in the name of Jesus. These religious leaders had just paid to have Jesus killed. I thought this whole Jesus thing was over, but here we are still talking about Jesus. So they bring Peter and John before them and they interrogate them. These religious leaders note at the end of the interrogation that they were unschooled ordinary men. In other words, there was nothing spectacular about them. There was nothing that made them unique. They're just average Joes. But then they added one more phrase. They said, it is clear that these men had been with Jesus. Apparently, their actions and their words reflected the fact that they had been with Jesus Which makes tremendous sense, as they had spent the last three plus years ministering alongside him. What happens when those personal interactions are not happening? I'm not saying that they never happened. I mean, most of us probably had at least one personal interaction, one personal encounter with Jesus Christ, maybe at an altar, at a youth camp, or in a church service, or in the midst of a crisis. But what if? You only had that one encounter with Jesus. What if you only interact with him once per week when you come to church? I know that for me, if I'm around someone else enough, I begin to think and to act like them. But if I only see them once a week, there's a good chance they're just an acquaintance to me. I really don't have much interaction with them. If someone I've been around enough, we finish each other's sentences. Are you interacting with God enough so that you can finish his sentences? I'm telling you today that the greatest need among Christians is not more obedience. I already told you, obedience and godliness matters. But that's secondary. The greatest need among Christians is consistent interaction with the Lord because he will change everything else about you. He will allow you to be obedient. He will give you what you need. He will change the desires of your heart. The Apostle Paul calls upon the church to pray without ceasing. And in those three simple words, He is calling us to interact with Jesus every moment moving forward. Listen, today's message is entitled, The Lord Will Provide. And I want you to know that the Lord will provide. But I'm not just talking about him providing financial blessings. I'm telling you today that he has already provided everything you need to be made new, to live life different than you ever have before. He's provided you everything you need to become the man or the woman that he created you to be in the first place. The question is whether or not you want the same things that he wants for you. And yes, I want you to be good people who reflect the character of God. But What I really want is for you to have a right relationship with him. When you have that, you will find that your actions naturally change. And when you do that, you'll find that his provisions are more than enough. So what can we do about this? Do you remember on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached a convicting sermon addressing the fact that the very same people who were witnessing this great move of God on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit showed up, they were the very same ones who weeks earlier had cried out, crucify him. Upon recognizing their own sin, They asked Peter a question, what should we do about this? He then called them to repent and be baptized. I am telling you today that we need much of the same thing. If you have failed to interact with Jesus, if you've been content with that one experience with Jesus that happened 10, 20, 30 years ago, but today you are not interacting with him, spending time with him, it is time to repent. The term repent literally means to turn from one direction and go the opposite direction. If you have taken for granted the opportunity that God has given you to interact with him every single day, it is time to make that change. I challenge you as a church to make Jesus, your relationship with Jesus, the priority of your life. Spend time in his word. Spend time getting to know him. Spend time in prayer. Spend time with the body of Christ. Get to know him and know that he desires to change you. So I am prepared to share something else. Are y'all okay if I go just a couple minutes late? I, I promise not to go long late, but a little long. Everything that I've talked about today connects with the individual. I need to walk in obedience. I need a right relationship with God. And I need God's blessing. But the truth is that all of this also applies to the church as a whole. The sad reality is that we act like we've forgotten it. Being completely transparent, this church is a little bit unique. We are, we are an anomaly. We are one of the very few that are still reaching people that is still growing. In fact, let me share some statistics with you. There are 400,000 churches in North America since 2011. That's where these statistics come from. 80 to 85% of them are declining or plateaued already of the 14 to 19%, actually 15 to 20%, 14 to 19% of them are growing because of transfer growth, which means you're just getting somebody from another church and getting them to come to yours. Less than 1% of churches in America are growing because they are reaching people for Jesus Christ. Since 2011, there are 8.7 million fewer Protestants than there were then as opposed to now. Those who never attend church in America, 21% in 1970 said they never attend church. 31% in 2020 said the same thing. By the way, there are other faiths that are not having this problem. Islam, Buddhism, the Wiccan church, Sikhism. As I looked at those statistics this week, Every one of them is growing by leaps and bounds. Literally, since 2011, the lowest percentage of growth for those groups, 89%. Yet the church is drastically in decline. From 2011 to 2022, we have seen an incredible drop-off. You say, well, that's because we're talking about all those mainline churches, all those big churches that are outside of us. And there might be some truth to that. Let let me share about the Wesleyan Church, though. From 2011 to 2022, in North America, we had 1,715 churches. Today, we have 1,487 churches. Membership in the Wesleyan Church has gone from 142,000 to 113,000. The average attendance, these were numbers I was looking for at General Conference that they never gave, but I got them this week. Average attendance in the Wesleyan Church was 209,000 and it is down to 158,000. It's not just them, it's us. So I got to ask the question, where did we go wrong? I got to tell you, it's the same answer that we talked about already today. Today. First, we've moved away from living in obedience. The church as a whole has moved away from the holiness that God has called us to walk in. We've become tolerant of everything, and we want everybody to feel welcomed and to feel loved, and we no longer call sin, sin, and it creates a problem. And I'm not just talking about those outside of our denomination again. We have become so embracing of every belief that we no longer know what we believe. We need to get back to knowing that there is a right and there is a wrong. The scriptures very clearly dictate, dictate that to us. We have also left interaction with the Lord behind. Does the Holy Spirit still have a role in the church today? I mean, the reality is we've got everything so structured. We know exactly who's going to say what and what they're gonna, how long they're going to speak, who's going to sing, who's going to get involved. What if the Holy Spirit showed up? Would we be okay if he changed the order of service today? Amen. The reality is the Holy Spirit still longs to do great and mighty things. One of the speakers this week, I was so challenged by this. He was talking about, why people surrendered their lives to Christ in the New Testament. By the way, the way you live matters. remember, wives are told to live their lives in such a way that their husbands might come to faith. So the way you live, your goodness does matter. But we as a church have taught lifestyle, friendship, evangelism. We're going to tell people that we love them, and because we do good things for them, they're going to come to Jesus. That's not actually what led most people to Jesus in the New Testament. 99, you can go back and look at it. 99% of the time that people gave their hearts to Jesus in the New Testament, it was when the Holy Spirit showed up. They heard the truth, but they saw the power of God moving. I think sometimes we're afraid of the Holy Spirit. He makes us uncomfortable because he might change things that we were comfortable with. Maybe we need to become a little more uncomfortable. The result is our, is our blessing rather than God's blessing. What I mean by that, this church, the church as a whole, will only go so far as the pastor has taken them. They're blessed according to what he's done all we need is to be blessed according to what he has done because he can take us a whole lot further. My prayer is that this church, I told you last week, I want to see this church reach the lost in this community. But I don't want it to be just because that's what Pastor Mike wants. I want us to interact with the Lord so clearly that the rest of the world says, I want whatever it is they got. And I believe when that happens, We're not going to have to fuss at people about how you shouldn't be drinking, you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be doing that, because I believe the Lord will begin to change people's hearts completely. It's not going to be about what we stand against, but it's who we stand for. It's going to be about who we stand with, because the Holy Spirit will be here with us. If you would bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you, Lord, I'm so grateful for these people, and I believe today that This room is filled with people who genuinely want a real encounter with you. And Lord, I thank you for that. Lord, I pray right now that you would pour out your spirit on us. That when we talk about the presence of God, it would be more than just empty words, but it would be truth. That we would know that you are here and we know that you are working because we see your hand at work. We see lives being changed. We see needs being met. And we know that this pastor is not good enough to do that. These people are not good enough to do that, but you are. Father, I pray that you would pour out your spirit on us. And in doing so, I pray that you would change everything about us. Lord, I pray that we would be people who walk in obedience, not just because the pastor told us to. But because the spirit that dwells in us is not okay with us living in that sin. Father, I pray that you would have your way. And then as you do, Lord, I do pray for your blessing. Pray that you would help us to see the power of God at work in our lives every day. Not just on Sunday, but every moment moving forward. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I encourage you as you leave here today, seek the presence of the Lord. And I believe he will make himself real to you. Thank you for being with us this morning. Go in peace.